Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of State of the Art. And if you guys have been following along, this month has been all about authorship and ownership and how modern technologies are changing the game in the art world. And uh, I I know you guys have heard me talking a lot about blockchain technology, uh, but it really is one of the most exciting technologies to change the game for the art world in a really, really long time. Um, I've talked to Kevin McCoy at Monograph about how blockchain can solve old problems of provenance in the art market. Uh, And I've also talked to Marcelo Garcia Casil from Mycenas about fine art investment and fractional ownership of artworks. Uh, Both of these are really interesting use cases for the technology, but one potential criticism is that they're both kind of solving problems within the current context and paradigms of the fine art market. But one of the really interesting things about blockchain and blockchain technology is that it actually kind of has the ability to completely change the paradigms in which we're passing art money around, in which artists can make money. Um, And that is why I am really excited to introduce to you my next guest, Beatriz Helena Ramos, the visionary entrepreneur and artist behind Dada.NYC. She has some slightly more radical ideas about uh, how we can re-envision the art economy, and I'm really excited to talk to her about it. So, I'm sorry, Beatrice, how are you doing today? Thank you for joining me. Thank you for inviting me. I'm I'm so excited to talk to you today. We're on opposite coasts, so uh, it's it's fun to be able to do these remotely. Um, But but I'd love to kind of get started um, for our listeners by giving them a little bit of your background, because... You know, you are a successful artist. You have work in the New York Times, on MTV. Uh, you've run your own animation studio. You've had successful gallery yeah. runs. You've done everything. So why why turn to technology? <laughs> yeah, but I, uh, I was a successful artist in New York. Uh, but I have to say a, a commercial artist, right? Um, I, I really don't know much about the art world. Uh, or the art market, which gives me uh, a different perspective uh, on on what are we trying to solve and what are we trying to do. Hmm. Uh, so I was, yes, I was, uh, I've done many, many things, uh, worked in animation for many years. Animation is actually a very collaborative uh, industry. Uh, so I, I fall in love with that. And uh, a lot of my thinking in terms of art comes from, from that, from, from the collaboration that is in, inherited in, uh, in animation. But I'm really uh, an illustrator by, for training, by training. And so I've done, you know, at some point I directed over 100 commercials for, for some of the biggest brands in the world. I made uh, content for uh, a lot of content for children, for Sesame Workshop and Disney. And so uh, a lot of different, uh, uh, you know, type of uh, artistic work. Um, and it was very, very creative. Always tried to do the most creative work I could. Um, but there is a difference when you are actually working for a company or for a client uh, than if you're doing your own thing, right? And after after many, many, many years of um, of working as an artist, I realized that maybe I wasn't really doing art. Hmm. Uh, and uh, and at the same time. You know, you make money, you do well in terms of of um, of money and living in New York City. But but I felt that I was uh, also putting all my time, all my effort, you know, all my talent my, uh, at the expense or, or or to the service to manipulating people. Uh, to buy products and and even the children's stuff, you know, to it, a lot of it is indoctrination. Mm, yeah. Um, so you know, after a while, I think when I was approaching my forties, it was really uh, for me. It was more about uh, legacy because you know you you have a a resume. You know, there's one more name there or not, one more project or not doesn't make any difference. But what it makes difference is. Um, what you're creating. And at that point, before I started data, what I felt is that I've, I've done all this huge body of work. I made incredible amount of value and I only capture a fraction of it. 
because I don't own any of the intellectual uh, rights to my own work. Mm. Because, um, you know, you, you will hope that after 20 years working, uh, you should have more uh, security, right? Like you not relying so much in your hourly rate and, you know, the time that you're putting, mm. but get royalties to all the work that you have done. So that's why uh, I felt uh, that I wanted to do something uh, more in terms of legacy. Uh, you know, you could go to the next step in your career, but uh, what does that mean when you're being successful? It's just another project, another a name. Um, and I really wanted to do something that would change the way things were because I felt if I if if this was me being a, a successful. A commercial artist in New York. Uh, what about everybody else? Almost most of the artists. Yeah. Uh, so I started a quest of how to change data without having an idea of blockchain or that we ever we were gonna get uh, here. Um, but the the first the first uh, idea was to create a platform where people could communicate uh, visually. I always felt. Uh, that I was sort of in disadvantage because I always had was measured by the way uh, you know the way you talk, the way you express yourself, the way you present. Mm. Um, but I'm much more eloquent uh, visually, and so I, I call it the, the tyranny of the of the word, uh, <laughs> the, the spoken word. Um, so you know there is this natural thing for for visual artists to communicate visually, and I was very. Uh, it was very interesting to me that there was no platform that could convey that. So that was our idea in the beginning. Let's make a platform where people can uh, communicate with drawings. Hmm. And from there, let's see if we can capture value and, and change the structures um, of how uh, artists make money and, and retain uh, value. So uh, wh- I'm curious kind of – you know, platforms like DeviantArt have been around um, for a long time. What what did you um, identify about them that you thought maybe you could do better or differently? Like what what didn't scratch your itch about a platform like that? Yeah, um, but that's an interesting question because it, it, I don't I don't have any presence in so, in social media, um, so uh Debian art was to me just a gallery with a community hmm. uh, which is great but uh it's not the type of art that I was doing so it, it, it it's very uh, niche and then you have things like Instagram which you will think that for somebody who you know I've been documenting and, and taking pictures since since I was a teenager um but I had no 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 uh interest in 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 starting to do that every day on Instagram um, because of the culture. Uh, so I, I really have no interest in, in self-promoting or showing people what I'm doing in my life. It just feels very frivolous, very superficial, and the culture I just didn't like. So I, I, I would like feel every uh, – Twitter I didn't even understand. <laughs> I'm still confused. Yeah, I still don't um, really get Twitter. I'm going to be honest <laughs> with you. <laughs> So, so it was like okay. So I, 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 I think there is a potential here to do something that is more organic to mm. artists and natural to who we are. And that meaning, uh, I think I really think that the whole, um, you know, imposition uh, to artists in terms of uh, you have to learn to be an entrepreneur. You have to, to be successful. You have to market yourself. You have to sell your work. I think that's the wrong approach. I actually think that we should not be spending our time on that. We should spend our time on honing our skills, on on finding our own voice, which is the most difficult thing to do. Hmm. And that requires you know, tons of work and time um, that have nothing to do with networking or self-promoting in social media. Hmm. So that is the idea behind that. And not only how can you communicate with with each other, you know, with uh, visually, but also can we make a system in which artists don't have to market themselves, don't have to think about self-promotion, just do art for the sake of it, 
because they love it, because they want to, because they're, you know, getting out of a depression and this makes them feel good. Yeah. Uh, because they're connecting with somebody on the other side of the world uh, through art. Yeah. And not because any other reason that is uh, external. Yeah. Uh, so so that that is what, what we were thinking. It's, it's yeah. interesting. I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, so I'll, I'll pose this as a question. But it sounds to me like what you're saying is some of these other platforms, um, it seems like, are kind of a good way for an artist to communicate with non-artists, you know, for an artist to communicate maybe with a general audience. But with what data it seems like maybe is a little bit more focused on is actually stewarding conversations from artist to artist or from creative to creative um, using visual language. Like you're not, it's not presenting your work. It's actually using your work as a form of communication with other people who kind of speak that language. Exactly, and that changes the whole the whole thing. And but it's but you know you're still showing it to an audience, right? Sure. There's still people who who are looking at it that they may may not draw that that are fascinated by what people are doing, and you know that people are looking at it, but um, but it takes away the need to self promote, mm. and 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 we made a lot of decisions to make it that way. For instance, we have a we always say that we have a very crappy tool. When you go into data, you 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 have to use our tools. And there's a very you know, it's 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 even like it, I think it's simpler than Microsoft Paint. It's like you have, you know, <laughs> some colors, a couple of brushes, and one doesn't even work that well and some transparency. <laughs> no layers uh, you know, I had to have the, an argument with where my my fa- my co-founders because I was like no undo, and they were like you have to have undo <laughs> <laughs> because to me it's like coming back to pen and paper. Yeah, and the limitations what they do actually, and it works really nicely, is that you don't feel the pressure. If you're a good, I mean, if you're an artist, you don't feel the pressure to do this master work. Right. right, this masterpiece. You just like do whatever you because you know it's so crappy the tool that it's not you, it's the tool, right? Like you just right. do your whatever and you post it, and after a while you forget about it, and you actually people actually uh, do amazing things with such a simple tool, and but it also uh, is for anyone who wants to try it, who is not an artist, and to not feel intimidated, and so then you have this conversations, we call them visual conversations, they have a narrative, they move forward. Well, you have a drawing of, uh, you know, somebody who you know is an amateur or, or may not even be, you know, maybe a lawyer that is just drawing some stick figures. And then next to it, a really great artist that took that and made it into something interesting. Mm. Uh, so, you know, when you're an artist, that, those are like softballs, right? Like, right. like, how do I do it? Like, it just like sparks creativity and, and it makes it uh, about about the connections, the creativity, and much less about uh, it has to be perfect or I don't like it. Or, you know, you get a lot of validation by yeah. doing it. And it completely changed the mindset. And that's what it's, I think, important. Uh, in our whole conversation, you'll see that when we go into the economy uh, side of it, it still is about a mindset and about those incentives and the foundations of that system. Yeah. That- so, so what, I mean, before we even get into the, the blockchain part of it, I'm curious kind of like, can you talk a little bit about the types of users that you attract? Like what is the, um, is there sort of a common DNA to them? Is there certain traits that they exhibit that um, may be a little different than a typical social media user? Sure. Um <laughs> They may be a little weird in their own way. <laughs> I would um, hope so if it's an artist community, right? Exactly. No, no. In, and in a, I, I say this in a good way. Yeah. Um, so one thing, uh, we don't call them users. Um, you know, the, that, that's one of the things that it's interesting. Uh, when you talk about creating products and building products, you make the decisions. Think, you know, it, 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 it really makes a difference if you're thinking about users and mm. if you're thinking about 
these artists that you actually know and you've been uh, connecting with, uh, you know, for some time. Yeah. It makes a completely different outcome. So we have uh, people all over the world and, uh, you know, you, you find young people, like 20-year-old people, and you find 70-year-old artists, uh, women, men, uh, uh in every corner of the world, we're actually, we actually uh, realize that, you know, you think that uh, if somebody has internet and good Wi-Fi and uh, they're like working on the platform, that they may be in the main cities. Or we, we actually found out that a lot of our more active um, artists in the community live in very remote places. Hmm. And it, it might be, you know, in very south in Patagonia or in the wilds of Africa or even in Europe in some remote places, um, you know, small towns. So it's very, very diverse. And that's uh, part of the beauty of it. Uh, it's, it's really interesting how such a diverse group of people can coexist in, in a in a space where no, where everybody's very encouraging of the other, and there is no trolling and no bullying, uh, even though we don't censor anything, and so that is very interesting. Hmm. Is that is is it pretty much non-existent, or is it just very fast to get worked out of the platform if it happens? The the trolling or negativity. Uh, 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 to be completely candid. Uh, no, I mean, we had, uh, in the beginning, we had, you know, the typical, can I say this, dick drawings? <laughs> oh, yeah. Look, <laughs> anybody that knows anything about drawing social networks knows there's dicks all over them. <laughs> okay. So, you know, they call them time to penis. Right, right, right. right. Like, GTP. <laughs> the time that it takes for somebody to, to, to just draw one. Um, <laughs> so, we, <laughs> so we used to get, because it was all very open. And you will have these beautiful conversations happening and maybe you have five, six drawings that were like, you know, people put three, three, four hours in it and then boom, happiness. <laughs> um, so, you know, all we did really was to, we, we, we have a gamified system and all we did was to make it that you had to do a little bit of effort before you could reply. Mm. And that, you know, that means that you could actually do like five or six drawings of penises and then you can reply but they don't do it <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there's something about the fact that it's not you cannot troll in, in like the immediate immediately uh, uh, that you cannot troll when you when destroyed something like right there in real time when you have a right. little bit of, of uh, friction then it seems like it's not worth it yeah yeah not worth so the time it, yeah, so we we don't have that at all. And uh, now that we have a very mature community, we have over 150,000 artists and uh, people in general, and a very, very, very core uh, active uh, community that have made over 100,000 drawings. So that's a lot of, that's, I mean, you're asking a lot to people, right? Like it's hard to get people to do a click. Imagine spend hours on, on, on a drawing with a tool that is worse than everything else that you've used, you know, right, right, right. that you're used to. Um, so one thing that is, that has been interesting now is that you can see a little bit, a little bit of something that resembles, um, uh, I would say, I'm, I'm not, I'm not saying it's sexual harassment, but resembles that, that sort of like you don't. It's hard to tell that it's happening, mm. but we've seen a couple of uh, moments in, in which uh, a little bit of aggression has happened in a very uh, veiled way. So, but in general, no, it's it's amazing, and we don't censor anything. You can still go in there and write a comment. You don't have any restrictions for that, and nobody uh, writes anything uh, that is, you know, trolling uh, yeah. of, of anything else. Yeah, I mean, so you're doing something right. And I know that's kind of the dream from a community standpoint. And this is something that um, it, it's very, very difficult, especially, you know, as communities grow in size, the ability to control <laughs> these things becomes almost impossible. And the dream is that the community takes care of these things that itself, that there's something implicit in how people are communicating that will naturally sort of weed those things out. And it seems like 
um, you've clearly tapped into something and put a lot of thought into how these conversations happen so that um, there's naturally sort of goodwill that that carries the community forward. Yeah, totally. And and it sort of neutralizes these these forces. And and it's interesting because we have seen people behaving toxically or very aggressively on Facebook or on Twitter. Mm. And same people behaved really nicely on Dada. So that tells you that there is there, there, it is about the systems, right? Like it is about the, the the community that neutralizes those kind of behaviors. Where what the way I, the way I see it is that uh, if there there let's say competition like people who are competitive we may we design the platform so that we never incentivize competition we mm. incentivize collaboration mm. and so and there's there there's systems in which if you're not competitive you lose we're right. making it that if you're not collaborative you lose. <laughs> Right? right. So that is that. Those are the kind of things that uh, that we think about. So, so tell me a little bit about kind of the genesis uh, from thinking about this in terms of community to thinking about it in terms of a marketplace or an economy. Mm-hmm. So we we always, uh, you know, it became very clear from the beginning that people were spending a lot of time on their drawings and those drawings had value. Uh, at some point, we had over 50,000 uh, drawings uh, on the platform and we started thinking, well, what can we do with them? Right. Uh, so that that value comes back to the artists. And so we try different things like uh, we partner with an on-demand merchandising platform so that the designs, the the drawings will become designs for t-shirts and, you know, mugs and things like that uh, at a scale. And, um, you know, that sort of work, but it's the the margins are too low. We uh, try uh, crowdsourcing content because uh, having worked for advertising, we know that there is a lot of value there. And brands will pay a lot of money for uh, tapping into a community like this. Um, You know, you will get really quickly people all around the world creating, uh, you you can create a campaign, you know, 100 people in in a matter of hours, right? Um, But then uh, the question was, what, how do we... we 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 had already been successful at, at getting a community that was very healthy and really people uh, doing things uh, it's almost like it's a gift to the community everything that you every join that you make is a gift and you're receiving a gift when you're receiving a reply so how you take a community like that and start putting money into the mix without destroying that and so, you know, when you think about brands, then then you, you start having, you know, brands in there and it's com- it completely destroys the whole thing. So uh, that's how we got into, into blockchain. It was that quest of this is not working and we will test it and we will try it. But it will, it will be very clear that it, 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 it was not the right direction for this. Um, and I think blockchain is the best thing that has ever happened that could ever happen to us it was the best timing also a lot of people ask us uh, why blockchain because the platform itself the, the the communication through joints the narrative that's there's nothing like it in the world mm. nothing like it online offline they have never existed anything like this it's very new very innovative um, and have nothing to do with the blockchain but the blockchain what brings to it is like it closes in full circle because now with this community creating this uh, all this valuable art, uh, now we can actually create a self-sustaining economy that is completely different. That could that, that is based on the values of this community, completely different. Have nothing to do with the art market, nothing to do with advertising, nothing to do with anything. It's it's, it's unique thing. Um, and so the fact that blockchain is attached to a financial system. Uh, and, and a token uh, economy that that can that can that can sustain this community is to me the the most uh, 
mind-blowing thing because it's also decentralized. It really brings back the power to to people if you if you do it the right way. Because you know there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, ways of doing decentralization, a lot of ways of of, of uh, thinking about these things. Um, but definitely, I have never seen in all the time that we've been working uh, on data such a concrete. Uh, vision of, of 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 change. So how how do you envision, um, you know what what does value mean to an artist and to specifically a data artist? Because this is something that um, I've always found really interesting is that you know artists kind of artists value things generally in a very different way than I think most people understand value. Um, so, so when you're talking about, uh, value in, um, within the data community, are we talking about, um, like, you know, something that does get talked a lot about in artist circles is sort of this gift economy and how you sort of, um, trade value that way. Or are you talking about, actually pulling in real world dollars into uh, an economy that trades, you know, some goodwill of an artwork for real dollars. Like what's, what's the vision in your head? Yeah. yeah, It's interesting. I mean, I know what I don't want or what I don't want to replicate. Yeah. Uh, And, and basically I don't want to replicate anything that exists. And so, so, and and I'm, and I'm serious. So when, you know, there there are very uh, few options, the the main problem I see with the art market and any, any other industry for that matter is you get a system that is winners take all, Mm -hmm. right? So you always want to have a few that are getting all the attention, all the, all the money and, and a majority that gets almost nothing. And this is true in in you know in most most of of the of the of the industries and then the other option then it's the kickstarters the patreons and so on which i think are a better alternative for what exists but i don't think it solves any problem and and my my biggest problem with that i mean i have a lot of problems with kickstarter and patreon but if you talk about um, just the, the patronage, right? The idea of the, the mecenas, uh, that's been around for, you know, hundreds of years. To me, I don't believe in supporting artists. I don't believe that that is, uh, what we, because it seems almost like if we didn't make any value and we just have to be supported so that we do our little thing. Right, right, right. So what is interesting is that coming from animation and I've been telling this to people is, I actually went and, and saw how, how big is the animation market. The global animation market is actually $300 billion. Wow. When you compare that to the art market, with all its extravagant prices, right. it's, it's only $60 billion. Right. And so you know, I like to put the, the, uh, the example of the animation industry because that's an industry where you see very, very clearly who is making the value. It's the illustrators, it's the designers, the musicians, the animators, the voiceover artists. It's the artists. And it's a $300 billion industry. That's just one thing because people think in artists and they think about, you know, these expensive uh, artworks in from the art market or these struggling artists that make no money. Right. But we're actually making a lot of value, creating a lot of value. And to me, it's not about supporting somebody to do their own thing. It's really, if we're creating value, the problem here is that we're not capturing that value. Right, right. And so how how you create a system in which that value that is created com- comes back to that community. Hmm. Well, so one of the most interesting things, you know, for me, one of the biggest hurdles when you talk about value in art is this question of what is the implicit value of art? So if you're, you know, if you're an advocate for the arts, everybody acknowledges that there is some implicit value, right? But the the cold, hard capitalist perspective on that turns it into um a scarcity based market, which basically ends up meaning that your uh, prices get set on speculation, which, you know, the 
the cynical part of our brains can pretty easily go into, well, then you're not like you've completely forgotten about the art and the artist itself. This becomes a speculative market like any other sort of commodity. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, so that all kind of drills back to this question of um, how do you design a system that captures actual value of, you know, the intrinsic value of an art piece um, in a fair way? Mm-hmm. No, it's a very interesting question. I mean, I think I spent the whole last year just answering that yeah. uh, <laughs> or tried to find answers to that. Uh, so uh, the first thing that we that we know and, and that we know that happens on data is that there is intrinsic value on making it. So here is interesting because we're talking about the artwork, the final product, but there is intrinsic value that is huge in making art. Hmm. So there is therapeutical. We, 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 we've been told that, you know, some people go into the platform being very depressed and go out of the depression. Some people have psychotic uh, episodes, paranoias, and, and it helps them be grounded. So to me, in terms of society, if if making art helps somebody not to go and shoot at a school, that's huge, right? So and and society doesn't value that in terms of um, of money. That doesn't mean that there is a huge value there. So one of the things that we know that is one of our you know our our, our uh, how you say this is 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 an intrinsic value of of data is. Artists should be able, an artist and anyone, should be able to create art without the pressure to produce, mm. just because of that intrinsic value. So I, it doesn't matter if you create something that nobody wants, nobody wants to buy it, um, because there might be many reasons why. It's not too commercial, it's not too popular, it's ugly, it's too provocative, it's, <laughs> too, it's, it's actually too good so that people don't understand it. Yeah. It doesn't matter that person should have the opportunity to create art. And so uh, from that perspective, we know, for instance, that uh, there is, uh, in the U.S., and this is insane, 96% of uh, art students quit art after they graduate. 98%? 96%. Sorry, 96%. Wow. That's huge. So the, this this book called Art and Fear, I think they they are they argue that if that was med school med <laughs> students, the Congress will be you know launching an investigation, right? But because <laughs> right. art, nobody cares. Right. But that tells you a lot because art, you know, if you decide to go to art school, that means that you already know that you're taking a very hard. Uh, you know, you're you're, you're not going to make any money, and uh, but then the fact that they quit. That's huge. So for us, is how we make as many people as possible to make art. Hmm. How we help that first. Because when you make art, um, there are all those implicit val- uh, values, uh, but then you're creating something and that itself has a value. The more people create, the better, uh, the better and the best stuff bubbles up, right? So then it comes the question of now you have that value, how in what context that, you know, people value that more or less, what makes people feel that, you know, there is something that they would love to have and will pay, uh, how much money will pay, they will pay for that and all of, and, and, you know, how, how those mechanisms work and how you do it in a way that is not speculative and it doesn't become a commodity, which is very difficult, right? Right. So, some of the some of the uh, things that we are doing is uh, experimenting a lot on those mechanisms and understanding what makes somebody uh, made the decision of uh, buying this for this price or buying something else uh, beyond speculation. So one, um, we've been doing several experiments in different uh, auction mechanisms, for instance, mm. getting really interesting results. Um, one, one, uh, we recently uh, participated in a first price, price auction, an English auction, the typical, typical auction that you have for art, um, which is 
you know, the same as, as uh, Christie's or Sotheby's. And the problem with uh, those auctions is that it really is all about this rush and this adrenaline that happens in the room and you yeah. want to beat the, the next one and it's like a show off of who has more money. And yeah, it's a game. It's a game of status and have nothing to do what, whatsoever about, you know, the art or the art world or the, or the artist. Uh, the artists don't get anything. Uh, most of the time, because in the secondary market, you don't get any royalties or any cut of the profits. Right. And a lot of the times the artists are donating those work. If it's not the collectors sell, reselling them, it's the artists donating them. So, uh, and it's, you know, it works because it, it pumps the price up with this mechanism. So I have had people telling me, but why you don't want to do that if it will like make the, the artwork more expensive and it's better for the artist? I said, well, no, because if it's speculation, we're all losing. And so uh, one um, mechanism that we tested a couple of months ago that have never been tested before is called the channel auction. And it's basically a combination of the Dutch auction and the English auction. The Dutch auction is a high number that comes down, let's say, in a matter of two hours. We started on 20,000 and started going down, down, down. At the same time, people were bidding up from $20 up. Uh, and so we did it in a matter of two hours and we bid, uh, we auctioned a, an artwork that didn't exist and that was being created at the time that people were bidding. And that's interesting because are you bid, what are you bidding on? You have, I mean, it hasn't been created. And how that changes as you see what's being created. In our case, because we have people all over the world, it was all online, on the pla on data, and you could see them uh, projected on the screen and you could see the drawings being made live one after the other. And that was very interesting because it, it, we got a result that we never expected, which was that at the very end, there was uh, 13.50 was the, the last bid. And we say, okay, whoever goes to 1,500 gets it. And the Dutch uh, number price was in 3,000. So you had the Dutch price, 3,125, and the, and the English auction, uh, 1,300. Mm. And so what happened was that the two bidders came together. They didn't know each other. One of them asked the other, why, why we just own the work together so, and, and we grab the higher price, the Dutch price, yeah. and we double the amount of money that the artists will get. And that is interesting. It's a completely different uh, incentive. It, 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 we did not expect that to happen. We had no idea. It just uh, shows you what happens when you change the mechanisms. They, uh, we were all there. They were looking at artists collaborating. That probably, you know, feels like you want to collaborate more instead of compete. Hmm. And then you have that duality of the Dutch and the English auction that maybe says, okay, so it makes sense to do this yeah. and just grab the higher price. Yeah. It, so, so we're doing a lot of those uh, experiments. And these are these are uh, digital drawings, right? Like it's a digital artifact, right? Yes, so we created a whole different problem on itself because it, they're all tokenized. Uh, there were there were seventeen drawings made real life, uh, real time, and they're all tokenized. But mm. then now you have two owners. Yeah. So how does that work? Yeah, we had to. I mean, the easiest the easiest way was to 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 make it a a print of two, like uh, two different conversations and, and for each collector to have one, but we really wanted them to co-own the piece. So we had to figure out a way of, uh, of, of having a multi-signature where both of them will hold the, uh, the, the, the tokens in their, the same wallet and they will have to decide together when or what to sell uh, and at what point. And that is interesting. interesting. Yeah. Because again, it's about collaboration. And uh, those are, the, I think, the kind of things that, that blockchain uh, can completely change. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what was the actual solution? Was that like a smart contract kind of thing that you had to figure out? Yeah, I mean, there, there are multi-signature wallets exist, but for, uh, for, for, let's say, like currencies, like ETH or Bitcoin, 
but not for non-fungible tokens, which are uh, the digital art. Uh, uh, the uniqueness comes from a token that is that is unique, uh, and it's called non-fungible. Uh, yeah. So I don't want to get too technical, but that is the difference. So they were multi-signature wallets for those who are not what we were figuring out for, for non-fungible tokens. And at the end, one of the collectors actually um, figured it out. So <laughs> that's that awesome. Something with a smart contract. Oh, and it took like a month and a half. Yeah. But you know, we did it. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah, yeah. And the thing also, just to end that point, is now you have a piece of artwork that is that has 10 creators from all over the world. I mean, we had Chile, Croatia, the UK, uh, Kenya, uh, you know, it's all like the US, all these different countries. 10 creators are now two collectors. And it's like a piece of artwork that now has a community attached. And you can even have a self-governance within that community. And what's happening with the artwork, which we're testing is with... uh, NFTs, non-fungible tokens, the beauty of it is that you can is you can create more value on top of it and keep track of who is uh, adding the contribution. So let's say for that, let's say that conversation is a drawing, right? So it's a conversation of 17 drawings. Let's say that animators come and animate that. And uh, some musicians come then and put music to it. Uh, every time there is an iteration of it that is a, that somebody's adding value, that gets recorded and that gets on the smart contracts. If at some point of any iteration there is a commercial value or there is or, or, you know something happened and somebody buys it for $100,000, all that comes back for, for to every single person that contributed to that artwork. And mm. that is also something very, very new. So people tend to think about just when, when they talk about blockchain, just in terms of a digital, you know, uh, the, the provenance, the digital scarcity. But in fact, is uh, the potential is huge because it completely changes how we have uh, seen uh, artworks when you, Take the scarcity part out because mm. you don't. It's actually you're decoupling the visibility of the artwork. Like now, everyone can see it. You still can own it, right? right it's still right. yours, but you have no control. Everyone in the world can see it and copy it and do whatever they want with it. But you are the one that own that piece, and you are the one that made it. That nobody can ever take that away from you if you're the the, the artist, right? So now you can just put, I make a drawing on Dada, and I just put it out there for anyone to add, to animate, to uh, to make it into 3D, into virtual reality thing, into and and show it in this virtual world on the, on blockchain. And every time somebody makes an iteration, and I don't even know, I don't even have to know them. They don't have to ask permission. Yeah. Every time. Uh, that person that is creating value on top of my value, it's going to be also recorded on this smart contract. And uh, and then it becomes like, okay, so now I, what I want is for people to just co-create, right, on my own, on my yeah. own my work. So, so is the sort of the vision, and it's, I mean, it sounds like you're doing a lot of experimentation and kind of figuring this out along the way, which is awesome. Um, cause that's kind of how, once you get into uncharted territory, that's kind of how you have to do it, right? You just try some things and see what works and what doesn't work. But is, is the idea that, um, there's sort of like, uh, hot spots within the community where there's larger sort of, uh, ingress of money that can happen that benefits, the larger community that's sort of attached to those conversations? Is that the general idea of how, how like we could democratize the economy of this artwork? Yeah. So, so the, in terms of the community, the, the ones I, I told you that the, we, we have very clear uh, views on what we don't want to replicate. And at the same time, some of the solutions that we think uh, that are appropriate for this. And one that we know very uh, from the beginning is basic income. So if you, if you think about, well, if you believe that artists should make art uh, without the pressure of, to produce, 
That means that there have to be some kind of baseline. Uh, that is also related to um, to the fact that uh, everything that people are doing on the other, they're doing it for love. Let's say, uh, you know, just because it's almost like a gift to to the community. Every time you make a drawing and when you receive a drawing, somebody's replying to you, feels like a gift. You made something and then somebody spent three hours, four hours replying to you. They listen to you. They, 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 there's a dialogue that is happening. It's very powerful. So you have a community that is basically doing everything. Everything they're doing is for intrinsic motivations. And we know by re- for research that um, at the moment that you add extrinsic rewards, oh, basically the easiest way of stopping somebody from drawing when they're doing it for love is by paying them and then stop paying them. Mm. And all of a sudden, something that they used to do for free, uh, they won't do it anymore because it's not worth it. And so what, what the, uh, you know, behavioral science, uh, the explanation they have for this is that your mind is changing from um, social norms to market norms. And it happens the same as, let's say, your friend asks you if you can help, uh, you know, to move. And, you know, you're going to help your friend. It's, uh, it's, it's a big pain and you help your friend because you know that it's a big pain. But if your friend says, but I'll pay you 10 bucks to spend the day helping me move, then you're going to be offended, right? Because your time is... Uh, right, right, right. <laughs> first of all, you're not doing it for money. Right. You're doing it for him. And second, your time, it's more much valuable than that. Right. So your mind changes from social norms to market norms. And so what we're trying to do is how can we... Uh, retain the these intrinsic motivations intact, the social norms that are probably also what keeps this community be so healthy. Um, how can we do that when you're including an economy and where you're selling and where you, you know, somebody's making more money than you and you're, you know, the drawing that was next to you, you're sold for uh, 10 times the one that, 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 that you did and so on. So what we're trying to do is something that has never been, I think, attempted before. Um, but I believe it's possible to do because of blockchain, which is an invisible economy. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like you obscure, like a drawing can never have a tag price. Uh, you know, you obscure all the processes and, and this can, you know, if you, if you, I mean, this, 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 this is something that requires hours of conversation and showing graphics and things like that. I don't want people to, to be scared about it. Right. When I say that, but basically you trust the system because the system, you know, that the smart contracts are decentralized and the, the, the money that you're getting, you're getting because that was the way it was supposed to be distributed. Right. And this is the beauty of it. You have a system that is trustless. And when you have that such a system, all you need to do is put the rules and and trust that uh, the system is doing uh, what it needs to. So an invisible economy that makes people just do what they want. And on the back end, there is a marketplace uh, of buyers or, or, you know, it could be licensing, it could be reusing, all kinds of things. It's opening a lot and, you know, these are things that live in different ecosystems. Digitally, it doesn't, it's not just that you sell a digital work, right? Right. It it can be in a game, inside of a game uh, environment, et cetera. So, uh, So you have this whole ecosystem happening outside, completely separate from where the artists are creating art. And mm. all they need is to know that money is coming into them right. uh, when they need to when, when it needs to come. And so part of it is having the basic income as a base baseline mm. so that you're not dependent on uh, selling anything. It's whatever you sell is gonna be on top of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean it, it seems like the mental model here is really and this is the magic of the blockchain is that the blockchain exists as its own economy that you sort of agree to the terms to of 
once you start attaching your artworks to the blockchain, which is the buzzword is tokenizing your artworks on that blockchain, right? But basically, right. that means you're agreeing to the terms of this um, sort of economic machine. But the uh, benefit of that is that that economic machine will continue to churn with or without your input. That exactly, and with or without data, actually, right. which is something right. that that is also like uh, you know you you don't we don't talk enough about that. But if we close doors tomorrow, everything that is that that the artists have created is going to continue to be out there, and it's it still can be sold and resold forever, and they will always get their cut, right? So. That's important. And so in, in, in our case specifically, and this is, I think, in general, uh, the ethos of, of the blockchain art space is to make sure that artists get the most. So you have uh, Super Rare and Rare Labs and all known origin. And uh, I think Super Rare gives 100% of their sale to the artists and they only get a cut on the second sale. Mm. In our case, it's the same thing, only that because it's a collaborative community, we uh, we are always enforcing, and of course, this is a community you opt in. We're always making sure that the, the collaboration and the solidarity is the most important. So when I sell a drawing, uh, 60% comes directly to me. Uh, 10% goes uh, is is divided between everybody who contributed to that particular conversation, and thirty percent goes to a fund um, for the community, and and from that fund is where we plan to distribute it as a basic income, which very particular uh, you know uh, r- rules of how that's going to be happening. Yeah. I'm curious about that. Cause that'll be the, that's <laughs> the devil's in those details, right? I mean, the, exactly. yeah. obviously the easy criticism is, well, okay. So why doesn't everybody sign up and start taking advantage of that? But as, presumably there are some rules about what your participation in the community has to be, um, to be eligible for that. Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, this is obviously uh, assuming everybody's giving value because uh, not the ones that are gaming the system or the or the ones that are creating no value. So because we have a gamified system that's actually easy uh, to to solve. But even when you know that uh, when it gets tricky, really, is when you know that all these people are creating value, but how are you? Uh, determine that value, right? And that's when it gets really tricky. So for us, it seems simple. You, we can say people that have, we don't have levels, we have little dot, color dots that you gain. Uh, people that have more than four dots will be part of that system. To have four dots, you probably have to have done 200 drawings or something like that. Sure. So at that, at that point, you're completely convert right. of this collaboration and, and, uh, and also you have given a lot of value. Now, the problem is uh, who decides what, how that value, who is giving value in terms of art. And that's when it becomes tricky because we have, uh, you know, we have people who are amateurs that have done thousands of drawings. Sure. And we have great artists who may have, maybe they, they spend a lot more time in one drawing and maybe they've done just 200. Uh, but they spend, you know, five hours on each. So uh, what we really thought about is how you level the playing field, uh, really level the playing field, meaning um, how somebody in, let's say, Ica, Peru, or or Kenya, or, you know, somewhere remote uh, can compete with somebody like me. I have, uh, you know, I have a Centic, uh, that I can draw on, on the monitor. Of course, I'm going to do it faster. I have 20 years experience, uh, more than a lot of them. Um, you know, you have all these privileges like uh, fast internet, a Mac. They have a PC that might be broken, slow internet. Some of them do it with a mouse, some with a trackpad. So leveling the play field, it's, a, it's an important part of the equation. So what we are doing is the only way of doing that, really, uh, and this includes even talent, right? Mm-hmm. And that's the controversial part. Sure. Um, 
it's not, we have to not put that on the question. The only thing that we should put on the question is who is giving value, whatever value that is, and who is putting the effort and the time. And so, because it's the baseline, uh, some, you know, we say that if Picasso is comes to the platform and, and, and he, he makes a drawing in a half an hour, it's this beautiful thing that everyone wants. Um, and then somebody very mature comes and draws something that is, you know, kind of crappy uh, in six hours. The person who is drawing six hours is going to get more money than the Picasso who's doing that beautiful thing in half an hour. Why? Because... What you want to incentivize as a baseline, right? We know that some people are going to sell more than others and are going to be more valuable than others. But as a a baseline, what you want is to create a system in which people are incentivized to just do more, experiment more. Even if you're a talented artist and an experienced artist, you need to experiment and and have that possibility of freedom. and if you're an amateur, you have to have the you have to put in the hours, and that allows people to do that and get better and better. And if you're a Picasso, what you want is for the Picasso to spend eight hours, not half an hour. Right. And so in eight hours, the Picasso is going to make twenty drawings that are probably going to sell for a lot of money. It doesn't matter because it's not no longer about that. If you don't want to sell, or if you don't uh, need to sell, or if uh, all you uh, what this guarantees is that it doesn't matter who you are, you have the possibility of putting hours and hours and hours of doing your own thing yeah. without the pressure to produce. Yeah. Well, this yeah. is, I, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm so, I'm so grateful that, that we got to talk to you and I think it's a great wrap up for our month of authorship and ownership because, um, y- you know, there's, the first thing that you tend to do when there's a new technology, um, and this is just kind of human nature, is that you tend to just take one step with it. You tend to apply it to the systems that already exist. But you know, the fascinating thing about truly innovative technologies is that they have the potential to really reinvent the status quo. You know, not just sort of update it you know, not just sort of give a library a website in 1995, but replace books altogether, you know? Um, And uh, I I think that this is a really great perspective on how how blockchain can achieve that. Um, And also, you know, I think for anybody that's listening to this and anybody that has sort of exposure to different economic models and, you know, different philosophies around economies and markets, um, you know what you're trying to do here is is pretty radical from the status quo, um, and uh, you know it takes it, it takes a lot to take those risks. Um, and I'm thankful that there's people like you in this world that are are trying because it's uh, you know it's it's obvious that you care very deeply for art and artists, um, but also just for trying new things and um, seeing if there's alternative ways. There's so much status quo that's stuck in people's heads that it's hard to think outside that box sometimes, but we need people like you to help, help the world do that a little bit. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I I totally uh, agree with you. It's interesting how to, how we see people coming into this incredible technology that has so much potential and just applying the same frameworks into it, which only makes more efficient what we already have right. instead of village. You know, we, we have a re, I, I believe this with all my heart, a, a, a real possibility of change and changing culture. And yeah. so that's what is exciting to me about this. Yeah. I love, you know, I mean, that's just something, it always feels like a juggernaut to try to change culture. And yet, it happens routinely in human history, right? Like all you have to do is open a history book and culture by definition is fluid, right? Like it's built to change and shift based on what our beliefs are, what our, you know, how we're going about our daily lives and the types of things that that we're able to do. And the interesting thing about technology and efficiencies is that it should be freeing up a lot of our time to be doing more interesting things. Um, And yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I love that you're actually trying to make this a reality. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So, um, what was that? 
it's exciting. It's, it's very exciting. And it's worth, it's worth doing it. Yeah. Yeah. And I know there's also uh, some exciting new updates that you want to share with users. What's the news at Dada that your uh, listeners, that our listeners should pay attention to? Yes. So uh, keeping in, you know, we, we are a company, a C Corp and, uh, you know, we did everything the way this, you know, the Silicon Valley type of technology company and, and throughout this process, it, it has completely transformed us. And, uh, one thing that I find very interesting, and now that you understand what we're trying to do, if you think of it as a company and if you think of it, uh, you know, as raising money with, uh, VCs, and the type of things that they they ask that you have to concentrate in, um, and, and, and it's happening in the blockchain space right now, is this obsession with mass adoption, for instance. Mm-hmm. And the obsession with mass adoption reminds me the obsession with scaling fast and breaking things, right? Look at where that got us today, <laughs> right? So one thing that we... Uh, are thinking really seriously is not to think about not to think of it as a company to think of it as the system being art so the system being a, a, a art in itself and when you think about it in that way then the possibilities are limitless it's not like I really feel limited by these constrictions of what you have to scale in, you know, in such amount of time or you have to sell this. Because then all the decisions are driven by the fact that you have to sell digital drawings when the potential is so much bigger than that. Now, I want to make the caveat that, again, you know that I'm very opposed to patronage and charity when it comes to to art. So it is... It, it, to figure out the revenue models, to figure out the digital market are a must because otherwise we cannot make an economy if we don't have the demand side coming in. But I think we have to do it and, and really think through to do something different and, and take more time. So we decided not to go on the VC route and to do what seems much more organic for us, which is ask uh, crowdfund with our community, inside our community, our community of blockchain and art, which is a wonderful community. And everyone who supports this idea uh, has a chance now to to own a piece of, of data. So um, we are launching today at Seed Invest. Uh, uh, so, you know, anyone can go to seedinvest.com and uh, slash data, D-A-D-A. And there is all the information. Yeah. If you support yeah. the idea, then by all means, yeah, uh, we'd love to have you. Yeah. Congratulations on, uh, on, on the seed launch that hopefully is successful for you and a fun ride. Um, and we'll make sure, you know, for listeners, make sure to check out the show notes. We'll have a link to, uh, to the seed invest page where you can chip in and help Dada reach their, their next milestone, their next set of goals, all that fun stuff. So, uh, yeah, thank you so much, Beatrice. Before I let you go, though, we always do one last little segment. It's just a rapid fire, getting to know you, some easy questions. Can we do that? Yes, go for it. <laughs> All right. So first question is, uh, if I picked up your uh, your iPod or your Spotify, whatever you use for music, what is most likely to be your last played on your playlist? Wow. So I, I, I don't have a cell phone or iPod or I don't use Spotify. Uh, I do listen to music uh, and sometimes can be pretty bad. So I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. You and, built it up. I want to know what your worst music is. <laughs> well, I, I, yeah, it can go. I mean, I, I just like, like very sad music. So it can go from, you know, Sigur Ross and Radiohead, which I love, to the most cheesy, uh, you know, Latin pop music. As soon as it's sad, I'm fine. Very nice. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> all right. You have, uh, you've kind of been all over the world. You've seen a lot of different places. What has been your favorite place to live? New York. Yeah. <laughs> I've, been, I've been over 50 countries uh, in, in the world and uh, love the world. I love it. I'm a digital nomad, so I have no home. Yeah. But uh, if I have, will have to stay somewhere, it'd be New York. That's awesome. I've heard it said that either you eat New York or New York eats you. So apparently you're <laughs> eating New York. 
And uh, last but not least, coming from the art world into the tech world, what advice would you have for artists who are kind of following in those footsteps, trying to get more into the tech world? Uh, you know, I think the most important thing is to to find a way of keeping uh, keep doing the work. I don't think it, it has necessarily anything to do with tech, um, only that I do think that blockchain is very, very important, for, not, so, not only for artists, for anyone to uh, really reclaim our rights, uh, our data, our, our data, our, our digital rights, our, our power from these horrible companies that we have out there. So I think, it, yeah, Keep doing the work and also get into understanding blockchain technology. I think it's important for anyone. I love that advice. I love any time it's just, hey, you just got to keep showing up. <laughs> Do the work. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much, Andrew. It's been such a pleasure. This was truly a pleasure on my part as well. And uh, listeners, stay tuned to .inwc. Follow them on all the Twitters and all that stuff. Or do you have social handles? Dada has. I don't. Yes. Uh, Power, Power Dada on Twitter. Uh, you can follow us there. There we go. That, that's Judy, our, our, my co-founder. Yeah, she does a really great job. <laughs> so check, check them out <laughs> everywhere on the internet. Uh, thank you so much, Beatrice. It's been a true pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. As always, listeners, thank you for tuning in to this episode of State of the Art. And uh, if you like what we're doing here at State of the Art, or if you like this episode, please rate and review us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Five-star reviews are always great. That's the most helpful thing you can do to help us, to help us grow, and to find other awesome listeners that like the same things you do. So thank you so much again, and I hope you tune in next week for another episode of State of the Art. 